Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Uh, this series sort of grew out of our little family Christmas breakfast we have every year. As the kids get older, you can sort of ask uh, a little more in depth mature questions. Last couple years, we've asked this question at our breakfast, um, give a life lesson that you learned this year. And they're always valuable and powerful. In fact, I was going to do a series on all six of the ones that we learned that morning. But I said, no, we need to get back to life in the big city. So I'm only going to do two. What I did was, as everybody shared one, we just tried to attach a passage of scripture to that truth. And so I just picked two, uh, a psalm and a proverb. So the series, The Singer and the Sage. Uh, and I think with these two texts that we'll look at, you get a little help when two things happen. Uh, the foundations of your life fall apart. Um, that's the psalm that's going to help us with that. And then what happens when your plans get altered? And the proverb will help us that. Both of these create a crisis, significant crisis in people's lives. And they may be due to uh, your own screw up. Somewhere you, you didn't come through. Either you're incapable or you just failed. Both of those are very, very difficult when we encounter them in ourselves. The other kind is just the, the, the surprise attack. It came upon you. You couldn't do anything about it. You can't believe it's happened, that kind of thing. What do you do here? Well, these crises require a certain kind of spiritual depth to manage. Uh, but they also reveal a kind of spiritual depth. They'll tell you what you're made of. So, um, so you might be saying to yourself, um, man, it's good to get out of 2019. Talk to a lot of people who have felt that. They're just looking forward to a better year. And I, I think I could say the same for, for Gail and I. We go away at the end of every year, the last weekend of every year. We just get a hotel somewhere. And we just hang out get away from everything. We sort of assess the past year, think about a few things for the next year, um, say a few hard things to each other. Uh, Most of them were said to me. (laughs) Um, So you sort of get reproved a little. You get, uh, you know, we assess reality, try to be as honest with it as possible. It's tough. But we always have a great time. It always ends up where it needs to be. Um, and so we had one of those years that we're looking forward to getting. In fact, on the first, on a Wednesday, I, I, went, uh, I went to the gym. I was on my way home, and Gail sent me her emoji. This is her little emoji. That's Gail. And she's just crushing 2019. And maybe you feel that way. Uh, but here's the thing about what we're going to talk about. Um, doesn't matter 
what year you're in or what decade you're in, your plans are going to get thwarted and your foundations are going to fall apart. A new year's not going to help you with that. And so you need to come up, you've got to have some sort of spiritual quality of soul to be able to manage these two things because they're revealing. They're, they're very revealing. Um, and the reason new circumstances and a new decade isn't going to help is because your heart, it's fickle and it's fearful and because your plans are flawed. Just facing those realities is hard enough, let alone the crisis that occurs because of them. So today we're going to look at Psalm 11. It's a short psalm of David, but it's incredibly helpful. Um, It could be one of my favorites because it's so compact. It's only seven verses. But at the end of the day, you want it so badly. You just want so badly what what he says. Um, and you realize that if it isn't true, we're just in a world of trouble. Just a world of trouble if what he says isn't true. That's really divided into two parts. Very simply, verses one to three are the panic. Have you had a panic attack anytime recently? Have you panicked over anything? I guarantee it. Uh, Well, we're going to see the panic, and then we're going to see the calm in verses 4 to 7. It's basically that simple. The psalm starts off kind of with a heading, uh, and maybe it's better to look at just the heading. And here it is. In the Lord, I take refuge. And you know it's the heading because obviously it's the theme of the text, but this is a very key phrase in it. We need to understand the Lord and who he is. Uh, And then what does it mean to find in him uh, our security and our safety? This is what we need to understand from the psalm. Uh, so you kind of got to discover who he is. Uh, you, have to, you have to discover what it means to take refuge in the Lord. And then you got to sort of, and then it sort of reveals to you why you need to take refuge in him. You know, why is that the, the, the place of safety? So uh, let's look at this psalm right away. Uh, so if you look at the first three verses, David um, is basically repeating something that is being said to him, and he's saying it back. So here's what you're saying, he's saying. He's saying, oh, so here's what you're saying. Uh, what you're saying is, and he says, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. And if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So that's our sort of panic. Somebody has given David some good intel. Uh, and David says, okay, so what you're saying, David's about to say, what you're saying to me hits me at the deepest level of who I am. Sometimes you'll get this kind of news. And it's going to hit you at the deepest level of who you are. It will challenge all of your beliefs. Everything you bank your life on. It's the place that asks all the big hard questions. In that deep part of who you are. Uh, It's where your worldview lies. 
what you see is reality. When you get rattled at that level, you know panic is going to set in. If there's not a quality of soul there to handle it. And so verses sort of one to three give us this panic. And I want you to see the panic. Look at the words. First thing is flee. David, all you can do is run. I mean, that's how serious of a crisis we've got on our hands. There's, there's no options. Look at the end. What can you do? There's nothing to do except for run. That's how bad this one is. So you got flee. And then you got these verbs in verse two. Notice how he says them. They're kind of deliberately, they're deliberate and they're slow and they're very graphic. Uh, the wicked bend their bow and you can see it. They have fitted their arrow to the string. You can just see a guy, you know, doing this. To shoot in the dark. Sneaking around. All right? Those verbs. Have you seen the last blood? Have you seen Rambo, the last one? You can't really understand this psalm if you haven't seen the last blood. Because it's the key to unlock the meaning. You know, it's the end builds, you know, to that plot where Rambo has to sort of rig everything so that when the attackers come, they're, they're, they, they step in traps all over the place. And so they, they always show you know, these vignettes. Music's playing, the vignettes are playing, and you can see them slowly getting everything in place, the traps. And you can see you know, the veins in his arms and the sweat rolling off him, and you just see slowly but surely he is designing the assault that's about to happen on the enemy. That's kind of what's happening here. David is hunted. There's that kind of suspense so there's this shot in the dark, and that's always how it comes. Out of the dark, surprising, it hits you. And all of a sudden, your soul is shook. That's what David's experiencing. There's no way to defend it. You, you, you can't always see it coming, but it's a serious sort of personal threat to the deepest part of you. Um, and notice, the foundations are destroyed. The very thing you counted on it's just, it's in ruins. That's the idea. And the word foundations has the idea. It's sort of a political kind of thing because David's a king. And what's being told him is that, listen, we're basically in the middle of uh, political chaos, cultural chaos, social chaos. We can kind of relate. It's just chaotic. Everywhere you turn, there's no basis for operating. Uh, no one's on the same page. There's no way to move forward. All you can do is run. That's what he's saying. There's no basis for life, nothing to rely on. You kind of have anarchy. And so when you're helpless and there's no answer and there's no recourse and there's no remedy, you're, you're vulnerable. You're like a bird, the text says. Just fly, get away, get high to a mountain. You know, he's probably picturing this mountaintop with trees on top and you just run to the highest, safest place you can find. And you notice there's no mention in here of the Lord at all. There's no spiritual advice here. This is just panic. And uh, what we learn is a few things about these 
foundations right here that are destroyed. Because at the end of the day, that's the bottom line that's going on here. The foundations are destroyed. And so when crisis occurs, when the panic gets said to you, when the panic comes into your world, uh, crisis reveals your foundations. That's the first thing you learn. At least one thing you learn here. So you don't really know what it is that you're banking your world on, that you're finding solid ground on, until a crisis comes in and shatters it. And then all of a sudden you just feel like you're free-falling because you found security in something. And the thing you found security in is threatened. And whenever it's threatened, that's when you know. I was trying to think of... Uh, there's a number of situations David could be in in this psalm because David was hunted a lot. There was always some assassin trying to kill David. It was his own family. Or Think about Saul for just a minute. Let's just use Saul as an illustration in case Saul maybe is the background of this psalm because we're talking about some assassin in the dark with an arrow. I mean, just some out of the blue attack you can't survive. And Saul was the first one to really be hunting David. I want you to think about Saul for a minute because we can be like him. I want you to imagine that you've built your world, you've built your world on your physical stature and your capabilities and you develop this reputation and you're popular and you have everything going for you. That was Saul. Physically, more than capable. Uh, a very popular person. And all of a sudden, this scrawny little kid comes in. This new guy on the block comes in, David. who's literally a nobody. Nobody knows who he is. And all of a sudden, he's getting all the attention. Can you see how devastating that would be? And for Saul, that was his foundation. He may not have realized he was doing it, but all he could rely on was his own capabilities, his own physical, maybe mental prowess. And then all of a sudden, it was taken from him. And he just goes off the deep end. That wasn't the only thing that was happening during this thing. One of the reasons he was chasing David was not just because David was more popular than him now, whose name was growing. It was because he wanted his son to get the throne, not David. He wanted his son to inherit the dynasty and the kingdom. But God picked somebody else. And you know... uh, You get dreams for your kids and they don't happen. And if you're John, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're Saul, you're like, they they can devastate you. Your kids will devastate you. Kids will devastate you. If every other dream comes to par, that's why the more you have, the more possibilities you have of destruction. And I've got four. But you panic. You panic about their future. You panic about your future. You panic about everything. 
And if your kids and who they are and what they have and how they're seen is your thing, it'll be gone. Can't rely on it. And see, it's your sense of identity and security that you get wrapped up in. This is why your hearts are fickle. Our hearts are fickle. We don't even know necessarily all the things that matter so much to us, what we're using as a foundation for our reality until the crisis comes. And then when it comes, you realize, maybe I've been, because uh, it could be physical security. It could be emotional security. You just get a lot of emotional security from who you are, from what you've done, from, for how you're seen. And if you get a lot from that, it's going to be shattered. So if it's your capability, that'll fail. Maybe it's your, your kids. Maybe it's your marriage. I mean, that's the one thing in your life. Not a whole lot has gone well, but you've got this great marriage. But then God takes one of your spouses. God takes one of you. Takes your spouse. Or there's a failure. And you just thought your marriage was the thing. And it was the one thing you had. And it got destroyed by somebody's failure. Or just through crisis. You can't even explain it. Or maybe it's your reputation because you've banked a lot on that. You've sort of earned this persona and either you screwed it up or somebody's slandering you. Or maybe it's your resources. You just never thought you'd lose that job or that account or that. You just never thought it would happen. And it's just shot in the dark. Or maybe it's your health. This year at Hillside, lots of people have gotten that shot in the dark. Especially, you know, especially if you bank on your health. If you're proud of the way you eat and the way you work out. If you're proud of that stuff, get ready. And that's usually, it's usually what you take pride in. It could be your plans. Because you've had, you got, you're, you're one of those you know, freaks. And you've got to plan everything. And then there's no way all those plans to come. Listen, if you only had three plans for the rest of your life, not even those three are going to happen. Let alone all the ones you have. Can you imagine? And so that happens. So here's the thing. It's anything you, this, that foundation, it's anything you built your life on that wasn't God. It becomes the, mo- it becomes the basis of your life what makes you tick. It's what makes you exhausted because it's because you run around trying to make it work all the time and it's what makes you anxious and it makes you kind of manipulative because you'll do anything it takes to make sure that those things work. This is how we operate as humans. And you're like, wow. And here comes the bad news that the foundation, that whatever that thing is, just crumbled. What do you do there? Well, David's going to give us the answer in verses four to seven. What do you do when the sort of the foundations collapse? How does verse one become a reality? How does in the Lord I take refuge? What does that really mean? That's what David's about to say. And so in this verse, you see the calms. You've already got the panic. Hey, David, get out of here. But then you have this phrase, here it is, now it's going to be used, that word that's in the first verse, and it's going to be used four times, really. But it's going to make three points, it's going to be used four times, it's going to make three points, that we're going to learn about the Lord. And this is the, this is, uh, the word Yahweh, 
It's not Elohim. It's not the word that just means, hey, there's a God up there somewhere. The general character of God's reality. This is Yahweh. This is the relational term. This is a intimate term. This is David saying, no, 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 there's not just some God out there. This is, this is my God and what you have just said to me. brings me right to the brink of this relationship. And that's why it's used emphatically and four times in the calm section of this text. In verses four, five, and seven, it's David's gut reaction to the bad news. It tells you Rhetorically, sort of literarily, just by seeing it there four times. It tells you literarily the place that the relationship with God that David, the, the, the place that it has in his life. This is the first thing that comes to his mind. David is sort of demonstrating a quality of soul that I know you want, I want it. And he's basically saying, God is my mountain. My relationship to God is my mountain. I don't have to flee to a mountain. I trust in the one who made the mountains. Because mountains are vulnerable too. Where can you go when the foundations are gone? There's really nowhere to go. This isn't the answer that David gives us. You don't have one for this. Your panic is just panic. You might as well just get over it. doesn't seem to work. Now, let me tell you something about this, and I'm going to encourage you to do something this year that maybe you haven't done, and I'll recommend a book that'll help you do it. I'm about, I'm just, I'm uh, taking very slow. I've been reading it since about the, I don't know, the third quarter of last year. It's just a quiet time kind of book. And uh, it's Henry Nouwen's, it's called The Genesee Diary. Uh, Henry Nouwen is known for being one of the great spiritual contemplatives. He's a, uh, he has a really good handle on his heart, his soul, his mind, his emotions, and he interacts about them so incredibly well. It gives you windows into your own heart. And uh, he took time off of work and everything else, and he just decided to go into a monastery for seven months and live like a monk. And during that time... He's just processed life and reality. And he, and, he, and he wrote about it every single day he was in there. That's what this is. And it's had a profound effect on me. It's just fantastic. I want you to listen to two quick things that he said that I think apply to this. Talking about a quality of soul. How do you have that? So that Yahweh comes to your mind when you get that panicky news. He says, contemplative life is a human response to the fundamental fact that the central things in life, although spiritually perceptible, remain invisible in large measure and can very easily be overlooked by the inattentive, busy, distracted person that each of us can so readily become. This is a profound statement. Because essentially what he's saying is, what you can see, the foundations you can see, they're not, they're not the real thing. But you won't always notice that. 
unless you're looking into your soul on a regular basis and reminding yourself, this can't be what I bank my life on. And he writes, the contemplative, that's you or I, looks not so much around things, but through them right to the center. Through their center, he discovers the world of spiritual beauty that is more real, more dense, more mass, more energy, and greater intensity than physical matter. He knows, he lives his life on a daily basis, that the things he can see, the things he can touch, the things he wants, the things he has in his world are not the most important things. They are not the most real things in his life. Your soul has to hear that every single day or you're gonna get knocked down, profoundly knocked down. In fact, he writes in here, you know, uh, he says this about one of my favorite lines in here that he speaks about. He says, uh, sadness is the result of attachment. What breaks our heart, what crushes us, he calls false attachments. You attached yourself too deeply to it. And then he writes regarding that. He says, I can be obsessed with the desires, these false attachments. And they're not bad in themselves. But by their being in the wrong place in the hierarchy of my values, they crush me. Whatever kind of spiritual life you're developing, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't include a quality of soul that remembers that on a daily basis, it's not going to mean a lot. So what is it about God then that I can take refuge in? What do I learn? Here's what I learn. Here's the first thing I learn. He's in his holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. This is a radical uh, sort of uh, divergence from the panic. David immediately goes to the throne room. He immediately goes to God's sovereignty. And the first principle is he's above and in charge of everything. All the chaos, he's in charge of it. That's the first thing. And it's a very serene image. Uh, God is seen beyond the chaos, unperturbed, seated. He's sitting down and people are running. Hey, David, run, take off. And God is just sitting, just present over everything and ruling over everything. And this is why you got to remind yourself. The first thing you got to remind yourself of is you're just not in charge. This is a really, really hard lesson. Most of our, most of our foundations are built out of fear. We'll do anything we can to build something in our world that makes us feel secure. And because we don't want to feel fear, it's one of the worst feelings in the world to feel. And because of that, we will do, we exhaust ourselves trying to keep reality sane, steady, working. I finished reading Luther's. Sort of biography of Luther, his story. Eric Metaxas wrote it, and it was excellent. I read Bonhoeffer by him, and then I read Luther, finished it last year. Um, if you know anything about Luther, obviously he's the Protestant, or the, the, sort of the father of the Protestant Reformation. 
And he was quite a character um, when you read his story. Uh, this is 16th century. He had a fellow reformer by the name of Melanchthon. Melanchthon was, it was interesting to read about him as well. This guy was brilliant, much smarter than Luther. And uh, a better orator. And um, was his, you know, mate all the way through this thing. And um, Luther was going up in this reformation against not only the church at the time, the Catholic church, the, the religious leaders of the day, but he was going against the emperor and the political thing. He had a massive fight on his hands for the Protestant Reformation to happen. So there was a lot at stake. Um, but Luther was sort of a loose cannon. He was a gruff guy. And he kept poking the bear. I mean, he would say things. He would criticize the leadership. He would write things. He'd preach sermons. And it would just create all kind of chaos. And even though Melanchthon was, you know, smart and a great sidekick, he was more timid. He constantly was saying to Luther, you got to stop that. Because if you don't, they're going to either kill you or they're going to imprison you. And this whole thing's going to fall apart. constantly worrying and Luther's line to him I mean it's memorable it's the line for the year as far as I'm concerned Luther used to say to him let Philip cease to rule the world hey Philip you're not in charge of the reformation God is he'll handle it it's not yours but I can be just like Philip can't you be like Philip I just, at the end of this year, all I did, this was no reformation by anything, by any stretch. All I did was I tend to do this at the end of the, you know, different semesters. I laid out my year as it relates to sermons and topics and different things that we've got to deal with. Between legacy and baptisms and baby dedications and uh, uh, Easter and um, just everything that's got to happen here, groundbreaking, Father's Day, Mother's Day. And I'm looking at this thing and, you know, it's, and I was like, I just wanted to throw up. We got resources to raise. We got a building getting started. We got ministry happening. We got staff reorg working. We got all kind of stuff happening. And it's like sometimes, and I'm thinking, you know, what am I going to have to read to be ready for that? I don't even know what that book is yet. God, what is that book? Uh, you, just, you just look at the whole thing and you just puke. It's only the fifth. And I'm ready to go. And you know what? I just, I just put this right under it. It's not all on you. And thank God it isn't. Sometimes the voices of panic, they don't come to you as news. Sometimes they're just in your own head. You hear those panic voices? So the first thing we realize is that God is in charge. He's above it all. Uh, it's not escaping him. The second thing we realize right here in that text, I believe, uh, let's see if we can find that thing here. I went too far. Here's our text. Um, he says, his eyes see, 
and his eyelids test, just in case you're wondering, well, God's really high up there. And I don't know if he can see what's going on in my world. David says, oh, no, 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 no. David, David says he knows exactly what's going on here. He, he has the perfect vantage point to see it all. And his eyes see, literally behold, and his eyelids, this is a great little image. It's like, almost, I don't even, I can't even think of another time it's used. His eyelids test. What does that mean? And commentators are just crazy trying to figure out what that eyelids thing means. Is this idea that maybe he never closes his eyes? Or he squints to really focus? Which between the two images, his eyes see and his eyelids test, you get one really powerful message in here. Not only does God see, because it says, behold, he, he, he takes it all in. But he actually evaluates. He's looking closely. He's fully aware of all of the detailed circumstances involved. And he's focused. That's, the, that's you say, what's he doing? Well, it tells you. He's testing. So not only is God overseeing, he's testing. And he tests. He tests the righteous. But he also tests the wicked. And so we're sort of contrasted to the wicked. People who know, people who know him, rightly related to him, and the people who are not. And then what you get in these couple of verses right here is a sort of an image of what the wicked are going to receive. And what you learn from that it's kind of a uh, ultimate sort of image that the wicked ultimately will be judged. And in one way, this brings all kind of relief to us because all of the injustice and chaos in the world that's being caused by people who love violence and love to damage and love to hurt other people, all of the wrongs being done in the world, there's a sense in which we remember that God is examining all of that and no one is going to get sort of off the hook for it. There's, he's just. But we also learn in it what God's looking for when he's judging. Because he's testing us. He's going to test the righteous, but he's judging the wicked. And when he judges the wicked, we learn something about what he's testing in us. His soul hates. This is one thing we learn about God. He hates the wicked who love to do violence. He cannot stand that. He cannot stand people who damage other people in any way, whether it's just deceit or whether it's all-out assault. God hates it. And so it's sort of irony. He hates what the wicked love. And then, uh, and he says, and because of that, look, let him rain coals on the wicked. This is their judgment ultimate. They'll drink a cup of scorching wind, it's sulfur, it's a horrible image. But let him rain coals. And this word right here is probably not the best word to use right here. Because it's the word for snares, traps. So you got God testing sort of the righteous. But in some ways, he sets a trap. It's just a trap for the wicked. And the idea is maybe they're uh, like bird traps. And the bird is the image. You're telling me, David, to flee like a bird when it's not me who's vulnerable. It's the wicked. I'm not the vulnerable one here. It's the ones who are doing the violence. This is a powerful statement. Uh, And David is trying to say, 
I'm being examined by God. My character's being tested. Um, I know what he loves. And if you're being tested by God, you want, you want to pass. You want to make sure your affections are in the right place. That you're not doing harm, that you're actually doing righteousness. Does anybody not want to know that? That's sort of what David is trying to say. The righteous want to please God. They want their character to develop. Uh, They want their heart to be in the right place. And see, here's the other thing about crisis. Is uh, it reveals, when God tests you, it reveals what your foundations are. Again, you don't know what they are until, until the test comes. And... Every once in a while, it's kind of nice to get, you know, the pop quiz. You know the pop quiz God gives you every once in a while. You know the pop quiz I'm talking about. You get it. Anybody here not get a pop quiz? Any of you guys sleeping? You with me? Pop quizzes that God gives every now and then. If you don't get them, you know what will happen? You'll, you'll get a little lazy. And you get these quizzes from God. And you know what they do? They reveal real quickly. They reveal a really helpful thing for the heart to know. I think I'm getting too attached to that. And see, without the test, you don't know it. You think you're fine. You get those pop quizzes and you're reminded. You know, almost getting an accident. Uh, Phone call. It could be anything. And it's just a pop quiz. Uh, And you know what? When the foundation gets crushed, here's how you know it's not a great foundation if it got crushed because it can't be real. Like like Nowen says, it's a false one. It's a false foundation. And crisis reveals that it wasn't worth me putting all my weight on it. And every once in a while, I got to be reminded of that so that I can turn my life, so I can veer back toward where I need to be. That's what the tests are for. Uh, my son, Nick, is a flight attendant. I've, or, yeah, not a flight attendant. He'll hate me for that. He's a flight instructor. <laughs> That's going to be a funny one. We're going to have a fun lunch today. He's a flight instructor at Alliance. I guess it's a flight aviation academy over there. And he is now instructing instructors, guys that want to become instructors. And so, you know, you got to pass all these levels. You got to do what they call check rides. And uh, recently he had a check ride with a student. And I'm telling you, I'm getting great stories out of Nick. I'm actually buying them from him. I said, hey, every story you get, I'll give you $10 for every great story you give me. So anyway, he's taking this student out for a check ride. And he's getting checked for his instrument. Uh, The part of this test where he learns how to fly with just the instruments. Can't look out the plane. You're in the clouds. You know, you got to learn how to just fly with the instruments. And so uh, he says, what we did is we approached the plane. And he sent me a picture of the plane. Uh, And he said, you know, you approach the plane. And when I approach the plane, the first thing we need to know is walk around it and make sure this guy knows what kind of plane he's getting in. Does he know how this plane operates? Does he know the systems that work in it? Because you don't want a pilot getting in that plane if he doesn't understand the plane he's flying. And so they walked around that, and Nick realized pretty quickly that he was not very, very familiar with the plane. And Nick said, hey, you gotta, you got to know this plane. Uh, so get on that. And then they got in the plane, and they got into the cockpit. 
And Nick realized pretty quick that his cockpit management was very, very poor. And, you know, that includes things like uh, didn't start the engine correctly, didn't load the GPS correctly, uh, was unable to grasp the air traffic controller's clearance correctly. Uh, because you've got you to hear what air traffic controllers are saying because you're going to be you only use an instrument. So you've you got to hear what they're saying, and you've got to repeat it back to them really quick to, to let them know. And they say it to you fast. I mean, he, he gave me some recordings of it. And then he printed out one for me, he, and he said, uh, and this is what it sounds like if you're in there. Skyhawk 321. Whiskey Foxtrot, you are cleared to the Bridgeport Airport via radar vectors. Join the 285 radial from the Maverick VOR Farah, then direct. On departure, climb runway heading to 3,000. Expect 6,010 minutes after departure. Departure frequency 118.1, squawk 5248. And then you've got to be able to repeat that right back and know exactly what's being said. I pressed Nick. I said, what does that mean? Meet me at Chili's for lunch at noon <laughs> as soon as you land. That's all it means, but you still got to know that. Anyway, I said, so what happened, Nick? He said, man, we just got to a point there where I go, we can't even leave the runway. We got out of the plane, sort of grounded him, really. And it was like, I said, wow. I said, what's up? How does a guy get to this point and these kind of struggles? And he said, well, this guy comes from a different school. This is sort of his first test here. And, uh, and I said, so what's the deal? And he said, well, they don't, they don't test as regularly over there. And I said, ooh, that's scary. Can I get on a plane and ask, hey, what school are you from? Because <laughs> if you didn't get enough tests, I don't want to fly with you. And see, that's essentially what God is saying. Your character, your soul, it matters so much. It needs to be tested regularly so that you're not flying off half-cocked. Does that make sense? I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to get so far into life that I realize, well, I went down the wrong path. I put too much weight on that. I hoped in that too much. Little tests will get you back on track. Some of you might be right in the middle of one. And you're going to get... uh, (laughs) Let me say something to you. I said, so Nick, you told this guy we're not flying. Yeah, he was a little upset. He was a little embarrassed. We got off the plane, we'll do it another day. And I just want to say something to you right now. You might be in a test right now that has revealed something to you that you valued, that you shouldn't have put so much stock in. And God's grounded you. We can't go any further till we get this solved. Let me say something to you. That's okay. You're going to feel a little humiliated when you learn about yourself, what you're incapable of, your failures, your, your, your unmanaged emotions, your insecurities. You're going to learn all that about yourself, and it's, it's so hard to hear. And you're going to get out of that plane, and you're Let me just tell you something. Regroup. Just regroup. Say, okay, I'll figure this out and I'll get back in that plane. That's the way we have to do with our spiritual lives. You can't just get knocked off your feet. I'm quitting. You can't quit. You got to keep moving. 
So if you're knocked off your feet and if God's grounded you, that's okay. You didn't pass the test. Let me tell you how many times I got grounded last year. Because I got blindsided by something. Just get out of that thing. And you go, okay, God, let's, let's, let's redo this. Because I don't want that to be at the center of my heart. Can I tell you something about God too? <laughs> and you won't always believe this. In fact, you hardly ever will. That God's one of those people who knows how to test well. You ever have a prof that doesn't know how to test well? You're like, what kind of test is that? I mean, I've had enough schooling to realize some profs know how to test and some do not. I don't know what they're trying to accomplish, (laughs) okay? But I've had all kinds of different tests. Here's the thing about God. He knows exactly how to test you. He knows exactly what to put on that pop quiz. And you will feel sometimes like God is a prof who has no idea what he's talking about. You ever have a prof like that? There's a great story. It's a bird joke. I got to tell it to you because it's a bird text. It's about this kid in college taking an ornithology class, study of birds. And it's a tough class, and everybody knows it's a tough class, and everybody, everybody expects it. And so when they get in there at the end of the semester, he's got this final exam, and they're all staying up all night studying for this test and memorizing the notes. Uh, they're exhausted by the time they walk into class. And when they get into class, professor calls everything to order. And then on the screen just comes 10 pictures of bird feet. And he says to the class, your test is just identify the bird, name the bird by looking at the feet. And the class is like, you got to be, I ain't been looking at bird feet. I've been memorizing notes. And so you could just hear the the wind go right out of the room. One of the kids just got frustrated and he got up and he headed toward the back of the class and the prof, the prof stopped him and said, son, where are you going? And he said, well, I don't think your test is fair. Studied the notes all night. We didn't study feet. And he says, you know, if you leave, you're going to fail. He says, that's okay. I was going to fail anyway. So the prof says to him, well, what's your name, son? The kid comes to the center of the class, looks at the prof, walks over and lifts up his pant legs and said, you tell me. (laughs) That's the best joke I've ever heard in my whole life. The reason God is so good at testing is because when it says he doesn't shut his eyelids, he knows you inside and out. He's seen every part of you. He knows exactly what you need. And right now you might be mad at him. And that's okay too. You get out of that little plane because you're grounded and you're mad at him. It's okay to be mad. I've been mad at God many times. Exasperated by him. That's where you just get back to the books and you start studying and you start realizing that really was my own problem. It wasn't the profs. It was my own problem. It wasn't the profs. So this is how he ends it. And here's the why and I'll give you this and then we'll be done. Verse seven. Here's our last use of the word, the Lord. And here's what he says about the Lord. And he pretty much gives you the argument for why he's the only secure place to go anyway. Not only does he oversee everything, not only does he test perfectly 
and examine our hearts to make sure we're on track. But he also is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. He's not the prof that's just dying to throw you off track. Just can't wait to ruin your day. That's not him. He's righteous and and he loves righteousness. And see, people who follow him, who love him and are in relationship, they love righteousness too. And so when they find out they're off track a little bit, they want to get back on. This is the main reason why God is your only refuge, because every other foundation is going to fall apart. Nothing else is going to last. He's the one thing that's always going to be solid and sure in your life. And if you don't have him, what do you have? If you don't have him, why are you panicking anyway? Because there's no meaning to it anyway. There's no one who's going to ultimately make things right anyway. There's no one who really cares anyway. What are you panicked over? This is just what's supposed to be. But that's not who God is. And then he uses this last phrase. The upright shall behold his face. It is really hard to put in words. This is true all over the scripture, but especially true in the wisdom literature. How inadequate a preacher is to try to explain what that last phrase means. Because I don't know if you can imagine having a face-to-face with God. But the Old Testament uses this image to describe what it's like to have the most intimate kind of relationship you can have. That's what Yahweh means anyway. And David is trying to say, one of these days you'll be right before him. He'll look right at you. And you're going to see his face. It's the most intimate image in the Psalms for a close relationship that you have with God. Now, um, because it means if God's, if God, if you're before God's face, it means he's accepted you and you have found favor in his sight. And it sort of forms an inclusio in verse four. Remember in verse four, he sees you. Pretty soon, you'll see him. That's the hope. But here's the thing about it. It's a future image, but it's, that's really not the whole of it. The whole of it is... Not only is it your ultimate hope and you'll see him one of the days, the truth is you can be confident that he's looking at you now. That's what the text already told us. He's already looking at us. We're already before his face. It's visible. You, you, you can see it. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual reality, but you can see it now. That's what I want now in this panic. Um. I'll sort of close with this image and then wrap it up here. Dallas Willard, uh, he's one of my favorite authors. He, he lost his mother when he was young. And he tells the story of a small boy who lost his mother when he was young. And every night he would get especially lonely and he would go into the father's room and want to sleep uh, with his dad. But he didn't just want to sleep with his dad. He needed something even more than that. When the lights were out and dark, the little boy wanted to know that his father's face was turned toward him while he slept. And he would say, literally, Father, is your face turned toward me now? And in the dark, all he wanted to make sure of was his dad, his face was looking right at him. That's what I want. Don't you want that? 
I just want to know in the, in the crisis, in the dark, when I'm not fully seeing everything I need to see, I just want to know that his face is turned toward me. And the psalmist is saying, he's looking right at you. He's looking right at you. And if you trust him, you'll see it. Now, if you don't know Christ, this is a promise for the righteous. This is a promise for people who know God. And they're not righteous because they're moral studs. They're only righteous because of the righteousness Christ has given to them. Um, in Hebrews, the chapter we're, what we're studying, remember when Abraham says, uh, he was, I mean, the writer of Hebrews says, Abraham was seeking a city with firm foundations whose architect and builder is God's. That's what we're seeking. We want the, the foundation God has built. You say, how do you get that? Chapter 12, in Christ. You get it in Christ because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. When God looks at me, he doesn't see me in my sin. He sees his own son in righteousness. That's the gift of the cross. Christ takes my sin on him. He puts his righteousness on me. Do you see that? And when God looks at me, he sees him. The only way to have that relationship is through Christ. And if you don't have that, I challenge you today to surrender your life to Christ because in Christ, that's how God's face can turn toward you to begin with. It's only because he sees the righteousness of his own son upon you. And then he'll treat you like a son, discipline you like a son, test you like a son, and develop your character like a good father does. All right, let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We needed it today. We really needed it. Drive it home to our hearts. Help us cultivate this principle, this truth in our life. And if there's someone here today who doesn't know you, I pray they'll surrender their life to you, put their trust in Jesus Christ. In your name, amen.